You can just enjoy yourself and focus on the people around you. Yeah, that's what a good host wants for her guests. And this is the picture of the world that we find in the Bible. Creation is an expression of God's generous love. He's the host and humans are his guests in a world of opportunity and abundance. And we're called to keep the party going, to spread his goodness. This is a beautiful picture, but it's not the way people experience the world. Rather, we find a world of scarcity and struggle, not abundance. And Jesus grew up in that kind of world, under military occupation, people losing their land or families to debt and poverty. And yet, he would say things like this. Look at the birds. They don't store up food for themselves, yet they have enough. Or consider the wildflowers. They're beautiful and abundant, and they don't stress about their existence. And you all should live that way too. But surely Jesus knew that things don't always work out. I mean, sometimes there really isn't enough. And Jesus did experience poverty firsthand, but he viewed the world through the story of the Hebrew scriptures, which claimed that our scarcity problem isn't caused by a lack of resources. Rather, the problem is our mindset that God can't be trusted. Maybe God's holding out on me. Maybe there isn't enough, and maybe I need to take matters into my own hands. And once we're deceived into that mindset of scarcity, we can justify the impulse to take care of me and mine before anyone else. And that leads to envy, anger, violence, and a world where it seems like there's not enough. The party's over. It's turned into a battleground. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us who are gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to start in the book of Acts in chapter 6. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them, and the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So the story starts out with some ethnic tension. Um, Hellenists are Greek-speaking Jews, and they're probably immigrants from other parts of the Roman Empire where Jewish communities have been established outside of Palestine, which is the Roman province, not the modern state. It's the Roman province of Palestine. And then the Hebrews are the Jews who have been born and raised in Roman Palestine, in Judea. And ironically, they probably spoke Aramaic, not Hebrew. Um, The issue is that the Greek-speaking Jews feel that their widows are not being cared for as well as the other widows, right? And so this tells us there's already, by the way, a clear 
organized effort within the church to ensure that the widows, and, and widows is like a catch-all term, not just for actual widows, but also for the orphans, the poor, the sick, the hungry, etc., um, that they're already being provide, provided for. They've got this organized distribution set up. They're making sure they have meals. And that shouldn't be surprising because good Jews should already be doing that. It's one of the laws they have to follow. And so it would make total sense that as Jews who believe in Jesus, they just continue doing the same things they've been doing but add Jesus into the mix. And the 12 apostles say, look, we, we can't let ourselves get absorbed in this. We have to go out and preach the gospel. If we start dealing with all these matters directly, it's going to eat up all of our time, and we won't be able to do the work we're actually called to do. And let me tell you, as a pastor, that speaks to me in all kinds of levels. Because um, it's easy to get absorbed in the little details of the life of the church and neglect the thing you're actually called to do. But you have to notice they don't dismiss it as something unimportant. Just the opposite. They recognize it is incredibly important. And so they have the congregation pick out seven men of character full of the Spirit to handle this. And the, they're full of the Spirit, right? There is an acknowledgement of the spiritual importance of caring for the needy among them. One of these men is Stephen, who is going to be stoned to death as a result of his prophetic preaching in the public space. So this is not merely some administrative function that has to be dealt with. It's a vital part of the spiritual life of the church. And it's not for the apostles to do themselves. The generosity, the caring for the poor, the administration of the funds, it's not the apostles' job, but it is a vital aspect of discipleship, and it has to be overseen by holy and devout leaders. That's why they lay their hands on them and pray for them. They are being commissioned, ordained to that ministry. And look what happens. The church grows. Churches today tend to make a, a couple of mistakes, right? Sometimes we either uh, neglect the need to care for the needy, or we outsource it to other organizations, or we despiritualize the need to care for the needy. And we make it just this thing that we're supposed to do in a, a box to check off the list. But when we begin to treat it as a vital part of our spiritual life, as a critical component of the work of the church, and as a holy calling that requires the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit to fulfill, the church begins to grow by leaps and bounds. Now, we have to ask ourselves, because look, our church does, we have a food pantry. We do Thanksgiving for a 1,000. We feed people for that ministry. We have a number of you who participate in Church Without Walls in the Bluff, and you feed people there. And we have to ask ourselves, do we treat those things as vital, holy, critical components in the life of our church? Or are they just things to be checked off our to-do list to make sure we've done our good deed for the month. Because if it's just that, if that's all we're doing, if we're just checking off a good deed from our to-do list, well, it's not going to benefit us that much in the long run. The people will still get fed, thanks be to God, but that'll be about all that happens. But if if that becomes a core part of the spiritual life of our church, if that becomes something where we recognize the need of the Holy Spirit to be there to empower those ministries, not just to feed people's bodies, but to feed their souls, that can change everything. That can change everything.
And it's not enough to, to outsource it. It's not enough to give money to someone else so they can go do it. Churches have to reclaim the ownership of those kinds of things. And when we do, we'll see the Spirit begin to move. And so we're going to skip ahead now into Philippians. Chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. And you've probably all heard these verses before. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, we all know that last verse, okay? But most of us have probably never used it properly, right? We like to use it as this verse of incredible encouragement, right? When faced with any kind of difficulty, I can overcome it because I can do all things through him who strengthens me, right? I can eat this 72-ounce steak through him who strengthens me, right? <laughs> True story, right? Or how many of you, when you were in school, thought I can pass this test through him who strengthens me, right? We, all, we have all had that verse, I think, run through our minds from time to time for relatively trivial stuff. But what Paul is actually saying is, Jesus is my strength, whether life is good or bad. It's not about overcoming. It's not that through the strength of Christ I can improve this situation. It's that because Jesus is my strength, it doesn't matter what the external circumstances are. I mean, listen to everything else he says here, right? I know how to be brought low. And how to abound. He says, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. When have we ever thought about plenty and abundance as problems we have to face? None of us would ever think, I need to learn the secret of having plenty. But that's clearly how Paul thinks about those things. He says that there is a secret to living with plenty and abundance, and that secret is to be content with Jesus, not with plenty. If you're content with Jesus, it won't matter if you have plenty or if you don't, because you have Jesus. And so the hard part of this verse is that you may have to be content with Jesus and nothing else, because nothing but Jesus is guaranteed. He is the only sure thing in life. But there's another hard part in here that, that's more relevant to most of us in this room, which is that you may have abundance. You may have more than you need. And you still have to learn to be content with nothing but Jesus, and that is actually quite a bit harder. When you literally have nothing but Jesus, it's kind of simple to learn to be content with nothing but Jesus because you don't have any other choice, right? I once heard a pastor from Africa say, you know, the problem with American Christians is that you believe in God because you want to. He said, in my community, we believe in God because we don't have any other choice. It's easy for us to have that kind of faith because what else are we going to do? You all have options. The reality is most of us in this room have plenty. Most of us have an abundance in our lives that 90% of the human race wishes they could experience. And it may not seem like much to you, but for most people in most times, in most places, we all live lives of luxury. And our challenge is learning to be content with Jesus when we are surrounded by other things that offer contentment. 
even if it's only fleeting. That, my friends, is my struggle. It is so easy for me to find contentment in the abundance in my life, right? My car, my house, the nice things I have. But the problem is it's never enough, is it? If that's where I'm turning for contentment, I will always want more. I will always crave more. I will always be driven to get more. There's a term you may be familiar with. It's called lifestyle creep. And the idea is, as your income goes up, your spending goes up with it, right? We all like to tell ourselves, if I could just get a pay raise, if I could have more money, then I could save more money, I could pay off these debts, I could build up my emergency fund, I could pay down my mortgage more quickly, but that's not what happens. You get more money, and you spend more money on things you don't need. I could think back 10 years ago to when I was working a part-time church job, and my wife was working a full-time job at a nonprofit that paid less than my part-time church job. And I can realize that, you know, back then, like, we weren't dirt poor because that's an insult to dirt. I mean, <laughs> and, and the reality is I worry about money just as much now as I did back then. I, I have the same problems with it that I did back then. Lifestyle creep. Our income went up, our spending went up along with it. Why? because I'm turning to contentment in the wrong things. I have to learn to be content with nothing but Jesus, because if I don't learn that, then I am doomed to be not just discontent, but ungenerous. I will never be generous if I am constantly striving to get more things to make myself content. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And that means I don't need anything else. But that, my friends, is a very difficult and painful lesson to learn. And it's one of those lessons that seems like most of us kind of have to relearn over and over and over again. But that brings us back into Acts, chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, I need to preface this by making two points. And the first is that this is not a sustainable way of doing things, and it's clear from the rest of the New Testament, by the way, that, that, and just the records of the early church, that this is not the normal way early Christians lived. Right? This is a specific movement of the Holy Spirit. They were not constantly selling off all their possessions and giving the proceeds away, because at a certain point, you'd run out of possessions to sell. Uh, and the second point is, this is not socialism. A lot of people will try and use this passage and say, see, the early Christians were socialists, but there's a difference, because in socialism, individuals are denied the right of owning anything and are compelled to contribute to the needs of others uh, through the mechanisms of government. God doesn't like compulsion. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. God wants us to give of our own volition and to do it joyfully. 
And God grants us the right to decide what to do with all that he has given us. That's part of what it means to be a steward. You have the right to decide what to do with it. But the passage does challenge us because it begs the question, if the Holy Spirit told you to do this, would you do it? If the Spirit told you to sell your house, give all the proceeds to the poor, and then trust in God to provide for you a place to live, would you do it? I wouldn't, just by the way. Don't, don't think that this is me saying, yeah, I would do it, I'm that holy. No, I'm not. I, can, I mean, my first thought would be, well, I've got a family to take care of. They need a place to live. They've got to have a place to sleep. They've got to have a place to be safe. I couldn't bring myself to do it. And, and this is clearly not the degree of generosity that God will normally ask of us, but this is the kind of community we are called to be. One that will not hesitate to place the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ over our own. These people were not seeing to their own needs first and then giving out of what was left over. They were making sure that everyone else's needs were met first, and then they were seeing to themselves using what was left over, and that is generosity. That is the kind of community the church is called to be. Now again, because of where we live, it's unlikely that God's going to say, you got to sell your house because the need is that great. But we do have to think about just how God is calling us to place the needs of others over and above the needs of our own. That's the core of that idea. They looked at their community and they said, all of their needs matter more than mine. And I'm going to trust that God will provide for my needs if I take care of theirs. And it worked, right? Because what happened? They took all the money they made, they gave it to the communal pot, and no one went hungry. Because everyone who saw a need filled a need. That's the kind of community the church is meant to be. And so we come into 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that the, by your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. 
For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Now think about how strange this sounds. Because of their affliction, their joy abounds. Out of their extreme poverty, their, generous, their generosity has overflowed. They begged for the favor of giving more than they could afford to give. Now, the background of this is there's a famine in Jerusalem, and Paul is going around to all the churches he's planted around the Mediterranean and asking them to send food to feed the people of Jerusalem. One of the things that set the early church apart in the Roman Empire, the thing that actually drew people to the church and the thing that, that the Romans themselves commented on the most was these weird Christians actually care for the poor people. Look at them. They're feeding the hungry. They're caring for the sick. We don't do that. And they're not just doing it for the Christians. They're doing it for our poor also. I mean, there are historical records of Roman governors bewildered by the fact that these Christians are caring for non-Christian poor people because no one did that in their world. You took care of your own. If one of your family members was sick and poor, you helped out. And beyond that, you had no obligation and no one would do it. This was one of the ways that they showed the gospel to the world. And as Paul explains, when we, when we practice that sort of generosity, we find ourselves met with generosity in return. If your abundance supplies their need, their abundance will supply your need. And he even references the, the manna in the desert. It's not about how much or how little you gather because God's fairness is in meeting the needs of everyone. You may be able to gather more. He may not be. But if everyone's needs are met, then God's will is satisfied. And God entrusts his people with that responsibility. And sometimes we forget that we are called to be the hands and feet of Christ in that way. That God entrusts us with that responsibility. And so the final passage this morning is from Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus' final command to his disciples is to go and to teach everyone who will listen to observe all that he has commanded them, including all the bits about generosity and feeding the poor and caring for the sick. And then he reassures them that he will be with them always. And see, we usually make the opposite assumption. Our reflex is to assume that Jesus is not actually with us. And because he's not with us, we have to see to our own needs and we have to take care of ourselves. And if we take care of ourselves well enough, then we can take care of everyone else. That is our reflex. Even as Christians, that is our gut reaction. But that is not how Jesus works. Because Jesus is with us at all times. And he knows exactly what our needs are. He knows how to give us what we need. But very often, we don't even give him a chance to provide for us. The early church consisted largely of people who lived in poverty. 
There wasn't a middle class in the Roman Empire. You had 10% wealthy, 90% poverty. They had no choice but to rely on Jesus to provide for them. And look what happened. They gave more than they could afford. They sold what little they had and relied entirely on God's provision, and none of them went hungry. They embraced the radical generosity of Jesus, and in doing so, they became a vision of God's future here on earth. And I would imagine anyone among us who has spent any amount of time working with people who live in poverty can attest to the fact that very often they are the most generous people. I can't tell you how many times as a teenager I'd go on mission trips to people living in extreme poverty and we'd go and we'd do work at their house and then they would provide for the workers a meal that must have cost them a, a month of their income just to feed us all. And they were so joyful about it. Our lives are different. We are not living in poverty. We have the ability to provide for ourselves even though that ability is itself a provision of God. We can and do fool ourselves into thinking that we are providing for ourselves and God is not with us. And see, that hinders our generosity. Which in turn hinders our connection to Jesus and our ability to be the hands and feet of Christ in this world. Jesus is with us always. And because he is with us and because we can do all things through him, we can learn to trust in his provision. And when we trust in his provision, we can be generous in ways that will surprise us. And when that happens, watch out, because that's when the Spirit will move. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.